Welcome to the Philosophy Podcast, where host and lacrosse expert Jamie Monroe will do what he does best, talk about lacrosse. Each episode will provide listeners with education, insights, stories, and lessons about the lacrosse world. We will discuss current events, coaching, philosophies, and college lacrosse recruiting. Now let's get started with your host, Jamie Monroe. Welcome everybody to the Philacrosophy podcast and today I am really pumped up to introduce Paul Day. Paul is the head coach and GM of the NLL Philadelphia Wings. He's also the GM of the Man Cup champion Peterborough Lakers. Paul, awesome to have you on the show. I'm really looking forward to talking box across with you. Hey, thanks for having me. It's a pretty good time of year with the Man Cup finishing and the NLL draft uh, happening in a couple of days in Philadelphia. Pretty exciting time. It's pretty amazing calendar. You know, a lot of people in the U.S. don't really realize what the box lacrosse calendar really is. But it's, you know, for, for a lot of these guys, there's not much of a break, is there? No. So if you, you know, generally a lot of guys on our team in Peterborough went to uh, the national championship with, uh, in the indoor game with National Cross League. And they finished mid-June. Um, and then, obviously, we finished September 13th. So there was no break, and now, uh, you know, it's tough for some of them to actually maintain a level of fitness. We played 34 games this summer in the box league in Canada, and uh, it's pretty grueling on the body. Coming off of, uh, you know, 24-game schedule if you went to the final in the NLL. Uh, it doesn't sound like much if you're a pro athlete, but also realizing that guys are working full-time jobs. So it's definitely a balance for some of these guys as far as, the fitness routine from now until November when camps open up in the NLL. A, they got to get healthy because uh, it's a pretty grueling summer. It can be really hot in some of the arenas. And B, um, you know, they've got to they've got to get back into a fitness routine. Most of the guys are really good at maintaining that through the summer, but they obviously need some rest at some time. Every other sport, there's rest. But right. If you're a full-time indoor guy, even if you're in college in the U.S., you come up and play junior A like your son Colin does at UNC. You're going into September and you have the stick in your hand and then obviously fall ball. So sometimes there's no break other than Christmas. Yeah, it's pretty, uh, it's grueling. On the flip side, it's a huge development advantage, you know, just to be able to play that much lacrosse. It's just amazing to, to watch these Canadian guys just continue to just get better because they're just playing such good lacrosse so much so there's it's kind of a fine line between too much and, and the advantages of playing a lot would you say it is and for the, us coaches too I mean I learned so much in the summer because you're you know you're in our league it's Derek Keenan in Brooklyn um, Matt Sawyer in Oakville it's Rich Kilgore John Tavares in Six Nations uh, so it's it's a lot of NL guys so you get to watch Twice a week, you get to watch uh, guys coach, and you learn so much. Rather than the winter time in the box in the NL, it's only once a week. So we learn a ton in the, the the summer. Plus, going through you know our playoffs, we were seven games with Brooklyn, six games with Oakville, and then four games in the Man Cup. I mean, you prepare differently, and I think we're it's for me, anyways. I've learned to be really efficient with our time uh, in the winter time, and uh, you know, you're once or twice a week in the in the 
in the National Cross League. So you become very efficient with our time. I think that's the biggest thing I've learned from from summer the last couple of years. That's awesome. It's really uh, kind of interesting too because these guys, some of these guys are playing MLL lacrosse too. And so, you know, all of a sudden you throw an MLL game a week into the mix. Um, you know, it, it really is a, a – the summer would be a, a serious grind for these guys. And um, it, I bet, you know, obviously having some time off to get healthy and get back in the weight room and get strong again is great. But I bet the NLL season itself is actually – kind of an advantage for staying healthy and staying fit if you know in the sense of you have some time to recover and rest and, and, and get in the weight room and stuff yeah we're really looking forward to the way we've got it set up in philadelphia obviously we're owned by the philadelphia flyers and comcast you know guys uh, friday night we'll fly into philly we'll have local guys living there we'll probably have about six guys living in philly but friday nights come in got our own training facility you know we'll be together from eight till eleven every friday night video uh, practice then Saturday morning get up breakfast and shoot around and prepare for the game and then Saturday night play and then come home Sunday then guys get home Sunday obviously back to work on Monday most of them they get to train and be healthy all week and then they're itching to get to the rink Friday night and prepare and I think that's that's where as a staff you have to be really efficient with your time and uh, um, it's it's a lot of preparation as far as um, what you want to do that week. So Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday will be all video sessions for the players. Um, so when they come to the rink, they know exactly what we want to do. And then uh, Saturday's shoot-around will be special teams, and they know exactly what we want to do, power, short, six-on-five, face-offs for Saturday night. So I think that's the biggest thing I've learned in the National Lacrosse League is uh, – you know, the preparation and the being efficient with your time because you really don't have a lot of time. Yeah, and, and I would imagine you also really need to uh, really consciously build on things, you know, as you go so that you can always add a tweak here and there game plan-wise, but, you know, to be able to have a cum the cumulative effect of all the things that you're working on over the course of weeks um, and months and, and even seasons from year to year when you start to get some consistency of your players it really allows you probably to to be more versatile and more multiple when you have some time um, you know that's kind of well orchestrated that way yeah absolutely I, I think in the past most of the time I've run a lot of offenses on national cross league so you know we might we've we definitely build on a special teams package for for man up or power play and six on five and Week to week, we never try and run the same plays week to week. So week one, we may run them. We might not revisit those plays until week four because we know everybody's preparing for video. So we like to change it up. Uh, yeah. We like to, I like to steal plays from other teams and actually use their play against them that week. It's, <laughs> a, little, it's a little bit of fun. And, uh, and it allows you to practice their play at the same time. It's brilliant. It helps our D guys. So we've done that the last few years. And it's a lot of fun. We, I mean, I'm – pretty good friends with all the coaching staffs. I've either played with them or coached them or worked with them in the past. So we have kind of a little bit of fun with that too, but um, it's, it's nice. You know, Tracy Kluski is going to be running our offense. He's a real creative guy and it's, it's, we're going to have a real creative group in, in Philadelphia. So I'm really excited to, to get together with that group. The Philocrosophy podcast is brought to you by JM3 sports Go to www.jm3video.com to get more information on the JM3 video assessment tool.
That's really cool. So, Paul, real quick, um, many listeners maybe don't really know your background. I know you grew up in Peterborough, but maybe give us a few highlights of your playing days and some of the big games and championships you might have won, your coaching along the way, and uh, how you found yourself, you know, in the position you're in now. Yeah, I was lucky I grew up in Peterborough. Um, it's funny, my neighborhood in the 70s, I'm 50 years old, so I was born in 68. In my neighborhood in the 70s. Uh, mid-70s, the old 70s Pro League was on, and most of the guys were Philadelphia Wings, Carm Collins, John Grant Sr., Jimmy Wasson, they all coached me growing up. So you learned at a pretty young age about uh, the box game and some of the great success in the 70s and 80s in Peterborough. I grew up playing junior there, went to four man, Minto Cups against uh, Paul and Gary Gaither, a year older than me, Victoria. Four. four in a row. Yeah, We were lucky enough to win three of them, so wow. okay. learned a lot about winning and being part of a team at a young age in the 80s. And uh, I watched a team called, we were called the Maulers, but I watched a team called the James Gang win three before we did uh, when I was in my early teens. So it was kind of a tradition. And uh, who, are the, uh, who are the notable players in the James Gang and in the Maulers? So the James Gang was, uh, you know, Doug Evans, Larry Floyd, uh, Kevin Evans, which is Sean and Scott's, um, uncles um and then uh john monroe who actually coached me uh geez uh great goalie and uh, walter quinlan he lives in new westminster when at west right after so great teams uh sid Vilneff. so all these guys coached us it was great and uh, peterborough if you played junior a you had to coach the minor teams so we kind of had the, the same system from the time i was 10 years old until i finished junior then I went out west, played in Vancouver, went to a man cup my first year with John Tavares, Dan Stroop, we were all rookies, and uh, came back and lost to the Gates in Brooklyn. And then I got hired as a police officer, so I actually took a couple years off of playing, but I started coaching the St. Catharines Athletics in the mid-90s, so Steve Toll. Uh, Darius Kilgore? No, Darius was, I played against Darius in all my junior careers. He was a year younger than me, so. Okay. Um, Played three years against Darius, then played with Darius in Buffalo with the Bandits. We won a championship there in 92, the very first year, and then started coaching in Rochester in 94, 95. I was young. I was about 26 years old. Went to the final the first year, lost in overtime to the Wings. We had Paul Gate and they had Gary Gate uh, in overtime. And then uh, we won our first championship in 97 in Rochester, and then uh, – Really spent most of my time in Rochester, a little bit of summer lacrosse, but being a police officer, you could only do winter or summer. You really couldn't do 12 months of the year. So got back into the senior lacrosse 2010 with Mike Hazen and Brampton. Spent some time in Edmonton, Orlando, and then back to Rochester for three championships in 12, 13, 14, and then took the job in Peterborough in 15, brought Mike Hazen with me. And we went to three of the last four man cups. So it's been, it's been a lot of fun and got the opportunity to coach our national team, the last three world championships. And uh, obviously that was a pretty, pretty good honor. Who are some of the biggest uh, influences on you as, as a coach or a player? So who are some of the guys and what are some of the lessons you learned? Yeah. Some of the guys in Peterborough, Dan, Danny Dunn actually coached me hockey and lacrosse. Most of the, we played hockey and lacrosse together growing up in Peterborough, so it's funny, I had the same hockey and lacrosse coach. And I played against Danny and Senior. Uh, Johnny Martin 
who runs a senior B team in Peterborough still. So those guys were playing on Man Cup teams when I was a kid in the 80s. And then uh, Lee Vitarelli, he's one of our scouts. He's the general manager of the Peterborough Lakers. Or sorry, the Peterborough Junior Lakers. He's got 11, 11 or 12 Minnow Cups. And he's wow. scouting for, for us in Philadelphia pretty good. <laughs> and then uh, his brother Mark coached us in junior as well. And he's kind of our – he's on our board and – He's one of our uh, board of directors with the Lakers right now. And then, you know, John Monroe was a guy that I played for, and then he coached with me in Rochester. Buff McCready in Peterborough was a was an interesting environment. We went 75 games in a row, three seasons, we didn't lose a game. But wow. I learned real young uh, as a rookie that practices were way harder than games. And uh, we practiced for two hours, obviously with our gear on in the hot summer, and then 20 minutes after practice, we'd run the stairs in Peterborough. If you've ever been to Peterborough's, uh, the grays, they call them. It's kind of high stairs. So 20 minutes, we'd run up and down those stairs. And I think I learned early that all those coaches that I talked about, they talked, you know, they talked about pre preparation was hard work. And you found that a practice was harder than a game. And, uh, but that was the preparation that they gave you, not just the fitness, but the mental part of it. Because it was sometimes grueling our practices, and uh, I mean, it really taught us how to win. It taught us how to be disciplined, and it taught us how to compete because we compete against each other in practice. And I don't want to say they were violent practices, but they were physical practices, and they taught us real early about being a good teammate as well. And uh, you know, that obviously put a bit of success, and I've tried to carry that out throughout my coaching. Um, you know, my coaching career. I think we, you know, you know, I've talked about touches and stuff before and our practices were nonstop. We didn't stop, look at a board. We just, they were nonstop for an hour and a half and to two hours. And then, you know, get to practice your own stuff at the end of practice, want to shoot after you ran. But uh, I think I learned that from all those guys in Peterborough. How much, um, how much sort of uh, pickup lacrosse did you guys play as a kid growing up? Did you guys play a lot of a lot of just sort of like just playing with the with the kids, or was it all practice and structure? So all we did every day uh, in the summer in Peterborough, there's a bowl, outdoor bowl. It's still there. It's called Legends Bowl. But in the day, we played games there too. Uh, in the back in the '70s and '80s, so every day we would get on our bikes. Uh, probably about a two mile ride, ride to the bowl. We play all morning, uh, just pick up outside in the heat and then we go to someone's pool in the afternoon and that was every day those are the same guys we played with so obviously you'd be getting in fights with your buddies at the rink and but uh, every day we did that for every day and you had a goal every day. was it live with equipment or was it kind of like with a tennis no. ball no or was it everything tennis ball pick up and then back a lot of backyard lacrosse like casey's doing with the speed lacrosse yeah we did a ton of backyard lacrosse but every day we did that probably till we were like in junior, in junior, you had to work every day, but um, yeah, we uh, a lot of three on three in the backyard, and same as in hockey. Every day after school, I'd skate down the street to the local rink and uh, play pickup at the local rink outside uh, at the park in Peterborough. So, every, you know, not every day, but that was our summers. You know, we were ten to fourteen years old. That's what we did every day. Phenomenal. I mean, honestly, like it's it's so sad that that stuff doesn't go on. Does it go on in Peterborough still? I mean, you said the outdoor bowl is still there. It seems like the culture of pickup sports is is been lost on us. But 
how what was it what is it like up there now yeah i think it still happens i mean drive around town i don't live there but uh, i drive around town i see a lot of kids with sticks and uh uh sean evans and turner evans brad self started nationwide lacrosse so same as me when i grew up in peterborough the month of july was lacrosse school so you finish school and every day you'd go to lacrosse school uh, for the month of july and what it was was um no equipment but it's just now it's indoor on the turf and air conditioning where we play it's great but it's all skills and drills all day long so it's not it's not structure it's just basically getting a stick in your hand. And in between periods at our lacrosse games in Peterborough, if you ever pull up a video, there's probably 300 kids playing with softballs in between <laughs> periods. And it's, I mean, it's huge. It's uh, obviously, you know, kids are playing a lot of other sports, which is great too, but um, I think there's still quite a bit of pickup uh, in, in Peterborough. It's awesome. Well, you can see it in, in the way that the guys play. So I got a chance to watch a few of the, uh, Lakers games. I went to one of your Brooklyn games um, live, actually. Uh, I, you and I did a game, a game breakdown on a Brooklyn game. I think that was a regular season Brooklyn game. And then I watched a few of your games versus um, the Oakville Rock, uh, game three and game five, awesome games. And then I did watch game one, the uh, double overtime thriller of the Man Cup. Um, but uh, just a really fun team to watch. Talk to us a little bit about what that Peterborough – Lakers uh, Man Cup Championship team was like and some of the, you know, special players that you had on that team? Yeah, you know, it's our back-to-back -back second time in a row. Uh, we've got – we're a young athletic group, which high-tempo lacrosse. We've got, uh, you know, 15 guys that are 25 and under. You know, the Jake Withers, Zach Currier, Josh Currier, uh, Matt Gilray, you'll see in the draft, um, uh, Bryce Sweeting. So we're a really young team like to play a kind of up-tempo, but very good team defense, good goaltending, Matt Vince and uh, Evan Kirk. And then our best goal in the regular season, a 23-year-old that just turned 24 yesterday, Doug Buck, and he'll be in Philadelphia with us. So, and then obviously offensively, you know, we're probably known for more of our offense, but our defense has been our strength with all those young guys who can fly. They run and they fly and they smother you. So, you know, Sean Evans, uh, Kyle Buchanan, two of the best rights in the game, small guys, but incredibly smart. And then on the left side, we've got Holden Katoni, went to Johns Hopkins, um, Adam Jones, who went to Canisius, Corey Vitarelli, who's uh, kind of an inside presence, great player, and Turner Evans. So we, uh, we've got a real well-rounded team and uh, a lot of fun to watch. And we're really, I think since we took over the team four years ago, we really focused not just on team defense, but team offense. It's got to be, you know, eight guys have to score for us to be successful every night. And it's a pretty unique environment in Peterborough. It's almost a sellout every night. And all the teams that come in to play us play us really hard there because it's, it's like playing in the National Crossing every night. So we know sometimes we go on the road and uh, the games at home are harder than they are on the road because of the, the players come in, they want to they they play well in front of a big crowd. Interesting how you have your benches across from each other in that arena. Old school. So, yeah, it's tough. I knew game one, uh, the Berards were having a hard time really understanding what they had to do on the changes. So, for us, it's easy because we've lived it all our lives. But uh, Your righties have to do a lot of running uh, in the way you guys start. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. We're, you know, we're, they're, and they're good at it. They stop the transition and they get off and we bump across. So. Yeah, it's a pretty unique environment if 
it's different than a lot of places, that's for sure. No doubt. I um, I mean, I really enjoyed watching, you know, really both sides of the ball. You're right. I mean, everything from the goaltending to the team defense to the speed and transition to the offense. I mean, uh, Zach Courier is, like, well-known to a lot of field across folks because he played at Princeton. And a lot of people felt like he was the best midfielder in the country, should have been a first-team All-American with, like, 50 points and, I don't know, 100 ground balls. And could face off. That kid can do it all. It's amazing that he plays – defensively for you guys in box and yet he's like rookie of the year in the MLL and you know can play offense the guy really can do it all can he? he sure can and you know you talked earlier about kind of a grueling summer he lives in Detroit and works for a warrior so I mean he's driving from Detroit for home games and Thursdays and then heading to Toronto to jump on a plane to go play in Denver so these guys love the game and, uh, I mean I think it, it's the good thing with Zach is is the sky's the limit. He hasn't even, I don't think he's even got to his potential yet as a player. Obviously up for rookie of the year last year in the, in the NLL. And yeah. also his teammate, uh, Jake Weathers, who plays for us. And yeah. Played at State. And Jake's so good on the faceoffs, obviously, but defensively he's one of our best defensemen and scores in transition, the same thing. So we were lucky to have some of these guys right from our hometown. And uh, again, they're, like you said, not only were they traveling the MLL this year, but they're off to Israel to play for the country. I mean, this is a tough summer for them. And uh, to be able to win, outstanding. And, uh, you know, they've got some great years ahead of them and so well-rounded as athletes. And great. It's great to have the best team, but it's really good to have the best people on your team. I think that's one of our, one of our big goals wherever I've been. We want to have the best people, and they are such good kids. Yeah, I got a chance to coach Jake Withers with the Atlanta Blaze, and I agree, great kid. Remarkable, like, in, the, in, in, a, in a day and age where there's a lot of Fogos that can't play the game, you just alluded to it, he definitely can. I mean, he scored some of the sickest goals for you guys where he just kind of like, you know, either going straight to the net fearlessly or he's kind of just playing in that little gray area of is he going or is he not and see if he can get someone to overplay him. And next thing you know, he's going underneath and burying it, you know, on a nice reach. I mean – Great player, tough, strong, you know, so pretty uh, – yeah, he's, he's old school. I mean, he is. Great, creates a lot of transition. He's smart with the ball. And, yeah, he is. Yeah, he's old school. He's remarkable. And then I really got, you know, like all, all of your offensive players were fun to watch. Um, honestly, uh, I love watching Adam Jones play. And Vitarelli, great hands. And Turner Evans, I remember him as a player at Ohio State and thinking he was pretty good, but – uh, man, the, the kid is just awesome in the sense of just knowing how to play the game and making your offense better and, and just banging shots when you need to, making the right passes. He just seems to make the right plays all the time. But uh, it was Sean Evans, though, that I just, you know, I hadn't watched him that much, I guess, just because, you know, I live in Denver. I see a lot of mammoth games, you know. Uh, he's just not been as mainstream as a guy like John Grant Jr. that you hear about, maybe because he didn't play as much fields. Uh, I'm not sure. I mean, I know he's won some MVPs and he's won a lot of man cups and the kid's been incredible for a long time. But, but honestly, I just feel like he might be the most underrated of the best players ever, you know, that I've, that I've certainly seen. Um, talk a little bit about like what makes that guy's game special. Yeah. I mean, uh, I think he's the most valuable player in the NL twice. And, uh, he is competitive 
the Evans family from Peterborough is competitive beyond belief. So their dads and uncles all played in the National Hockey League. Plus, they won Minto and Man Cup. So he comes from that. He's the youngest of all the, the nephews. Um, won two Minto Cups, one in Peterborough and one with Six Nations. And then he's, uh, he's won several Man Cups. And 2007 won an NL championship in Rochester. Been to a couple with Calgary. Now he's in Buffalo. Um, He's very, very, very competitive. That's the number one thing with him. Good he's hockey player. Fearless. Sorry? He's fearless too, isn't he? Fearless, yep. And uh, you're not going to get anything over on Sean. He's uh, extremely, he's one of the best passers I've ever seen. The vision he has is, uh, is incredible. Him and Dan Dawson, I would say, the two best passers I've seen this year. In the Man Cup, he set a record for uh, most assists. He's passed John Tavares. In man cups. Wow. Um, I think with he's played a lot less games than John too. So I think he had one and eight the one game in the man cup, one goal, eight assists. Tied his dad uh, forty years to the day for eight assists in one game. So wow. So um, great vision, good feet, toughness, um, very deceptive shot too. Um, likes to shoot it underhand once in a while, but in the man cup. He kind of found some short side on on uh, the Maple Ridge goalie and had some success with us. He game six against Oakville in the series, he scored a natural hat trick three in a row to, to get us to the Man Cup and kind of carried us on our on his back that night. So yeah, relentless competitor, relentless. Who's matched up on him? It was uh, uh, Jason Noble was matched up on him in the uh, Rock game. I <laughs> I put a clip yeah. my little weekly blog about how you know those are guys the guys are going at it the entire time and, and sean evans like squares him up with the ball and he's getting ready he's like dancing like he does about to you know maybe go left go right next thing you know he just punches jason noble in the face with his left hand while he's cradling two-handed with his right hand and then just <laughs> it was just like oh my god i've never seen that before it's pretty funny yeah no that's that's shawnee they go at it winter summer him and Jason Noble go at it all the time. And obviously Jason's one of the best defenders. Like he's unbelievable. So yeah. Toughness, the same thing. They're both competitive and they hate each other pretty much on the floor. And uh, yeah, that whole series, Shawnee went at him. And then game six, he just got the right matchups at the right time and ended up with some other guys checking him. And uh, he did a really good job. And uh, But he's smart enough. He'll make that move on Jason. And then next thing you know, he's making the pass right over his shoulder with a to a lefty on the crease wide open. I think that's – It's unbelievable his... how he, like, makes the right look, it seems, like, under duress. Like, whether it's a – you know, he go underneath and, you know, you know backhand pump a couple times and then throw a, a you know, a shovel backhand or he'll, you know, one-hand it or he'll – you know, the, remember the one where he threw it across the crease to the righty on the wrong side and it was just like um, going – I mean, it was just insane, like, for people that haven't really watched this guy, you, you need to watch the highlights. It, it's it's crazy what he does. Yeah, same school. Him and Buchanan have such good chemistry. That's why I brought Buchanan to, to Peterborough. Um, they played together in New England. They both had two of their best years. And same thing in the Man Cup. Buchanan just parks on the crease, stops, parks, waits for that, wait for that slip pick. You know, gets the ball and puts it in the net. But uh, and he doesn't take a lot of time to pass. He passes right from. You know, right from his shoulder, that quick pass to the left, so he doesn't wind up a lot. I think that's the difference. He starts making the move, and it's just a quick shovel, quick pass, 
right to that lefty all the time. I think that's the, the difference. He doesn't wind up a lot. He's sort of in a – it's like a, a dodging posture. It looks like he's going to the goal, yeah. and all of a sudden he's passing, right? And that's like gets, – it gets everyone to look at him. Absolutely. Yeah. No, it's very smart. That's just, we talk about that a lot, and that's, you know um, – it's funny, he could probably pass even more. Sometimes he, he's very competitive, so he gets into a battle with Jason Noble, and he's got no goals, and he just wants to beat him once. <laughs> I think I tell a lot of offensive guys, you go with that battle, the double comes. The quicker you pass it, the more room you're going to have. So the first time you go to the net, that double comes, should be right over the guy's shoulder who's coming. And the quicker that gets under the stick, the more room you're going to have. That double's not going to come as quick. But he's very competitive. It's like Junior and a lot of these guys, and they just keep driving and driving until they beat you once. Yeah, pretty amazing. The Philocrosophy Podcast is brought to you by JM3 Sports. Go to www.jm3video.com to get more information on the JM3 video assessment tool. Well, uh, so congrats on the, uh, on, the, on the Man Cup Championship. Let's talk a little bit about the Philadelphia Wings. So you've got a draft coming up. What's, uh, what's new with the Wings? Tell, uh, tell everybody like, you know, what, how, how pumped up you are about getting that going. Yeah, this is one of the best drafts in the National Lacrosse League for lefties. Uh, lefty forwards are tough to come by. I mean uh, – Obviously, you know, Jeff Teets coming out in a few years this year, Austin Stats and Chris Blucci are coming out. They're going to be generational players for the next 10 years in the National Lacrosse League. So we've got the second pick. San Diego's got the first pick, and we expect to end up with one of those guys. And uh, we pick at 14. But, again, this draft, it's, it's full of talented guys that are all graduated from U.S. schools that are a lot of Canadian guys and a lot of American guys. And, uh, I think with obviously the last 10 years of companies like yourself, Fox is becoming everybody I talked to the last three weeks that are in the draft that played in NCAA, they've all played some box because of, you know, your company and other companies. So it's a great, it's exciting time for, uh, for the national crossing in the next, the drafts are getting better every year because of that. And uh, we're excited to, to get started and the expansion draft. We took a lot of offense because, we know it's hard to come by in this year's draft. Austin Stats, Kluche, Connor Fields, Connor Robinson as lefties. And then after that, there's not a lot of left. So that's, uh, we're pretty excited about it. That's awesome. And um, how, what do you think the prospects are for, for U.S. players, particularly offensive players, to be able to, you know, make rosters in the NLL kind of moving forward as we see some expansion but also just generally speaking, like you see a little bit of a shift where <clears throat> GMs and, and coaches are going to kind of do what an American offensive player needs, which is have a chance. Yeah, I think people should understand. I mean, the National Lacrosse League in the 90s and 2000s was, you know, it was built on U.S. players. And I think it's coming back to that. Um, obviously, with the change in the MLL schedule the last five or six years, that changed, shifted. But uh, I'm pretty sure by the end of the draft this year, I'll have drafted more American players than Canadian players for sure. And yeah. I think that, that's the oh, way yeah. it's, that's, I'm, I'm almost, I can tell you right now, I'll probably, if we pick nine players, I'll probably have three or four Canadians and five or six Americans. And everybody I've talked to from the NCAA, you know, they're all excited and they want to play and they know that they might have to spend some time on the practice roster. But, I mean, we got a 24-man roster, four practice roster guys. They're, they want to develop and they know that 
the National Lacrosse League, the the way they're treated, it's treated very professional. Where obviously most of the teams are owned by NHL and NBA teams. So the big thing with guys coming out of college is it's going to be professional. They want to be treated that way. And yeah. I'll hear from other guys that are in the MLL about how professional the National Lacrosse League is. So I mean, I think you're going to see that you know drafts are going to be 50-50 and more going on over the next five years. So, um, you know, I, I played one year in the MILL, and it was really hard for me to do that and coach. So I was coaching at Yale in New Haven, Connecticut. So I played in the, for the Boston Blazers in 1993, probably played against you. Um, and um, it was, like, so hard to get good at the game because you'd only practice once a week. And so, you know, it's still the same now to this day, right? So you're on the practice roster. That's awesome. You get to go practice. But really – half the time in practice, everyone's trying to prepare. So you have to, you know, you're not in on those preparations. I'm sure you're figuring stuff out to help the guys develop, but it, it's also, you know, it's just, a, it's not a lot of practice time. So what's the solution for Americans? Cause I really feel like if you took, if you took these kids and actually get, like, like if all these American attackmen just went up and played like senior lacrosse for, for, for a summer or two, they'd all be able to play but it's too hard to make that commitment. So is there a way to bridge the gap? Is there any thoughts as far as that goes? Well, I think you see most of the college teams now are, have a box, you know, part of the training is a box program, which is a great introduction to it. Yeah. And U.S. US box is huge for the youth. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think it's, to be honest, I think the indoor game might be easier to learn than the outdoor game. Um, as far as, I mean, all the American guys we get are good athletes. And, because of 3D and other companies, these guys have all, they've already, they've played it. You know, we had a combine in Philly two weeks ago, and, you know, there's probably five or six kids that said, oh, I was in Niagara on the Lake before, and I met you up there. And oh, really? Have, oh, yeah. So they have a great. That's so funny. I talked to a kid from Penn yesterday who's from Boston. He said, you know, I worked with Goody in Boston for years. So this year, everybody I've talked to, has had some introduction to box. Yeah. I think things are changing, and five years from now, we probably won't have this conversation because, you know, they would have grown up playing box, U.S. box love. Or, um, and then, you know, a couple of guys we signed, Liam Burns from Atlanta. He played in Brampton Senior. Adam Osaka played in Brampton Senior. So guys are coming up here, yeah. So they, they come up here, I see them in the summer, and you know, those, those are the guys we want. Obviously, there's... There's not enough Canadians, and uh, I mean, if we can have more guys in the market and playing the game, it's going to take growing pains. But for us, for me, the development really is, starts with the you know video. So our our October after our draft, our October will be guys every week will be getting video from us cut up from you know right A to Z basically as a defenseman or or an offensive player. So. We'll prepare them before we even get to camp. National Cross League, October the 6th and 7th in Philadelphia is putting on an instructional combine for all the top U.S. players. So coaches will be there and work with them. So it's a, definitely a development program that's starting in the NLL. And uh, awesome. it's, it's going to, for sure, it's going to take off. One of the things you said to me that you look at in players first and foremost, and maybe or, or maybe overall most, is just their ability from an offensive perspective is their off-ball abilities. Can you talk a little bit about more specifically, like what you mean by that? Like, you know, 
it, maybe there's some kids listening that are going to be trying out, some coaches that are looking to develop there. But, like, what are the sort of off-ball things you're looking for? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, really when I go to a junior game or a senior game or college game, I, I watch people when they don't have the ball. Sometimes that's all I watch. I really want to see what you're doing when you don't have the ball. So are you getting yourself open? Are you getting someone else open? Obviously, in the indoor game, you can pick to get someone else open. So, I mean, I talk to kids that say a little about, you know, you got the, everybody wants the ball. Everybody wants the ball and they want to shoot top corners. But when you don't have the ball, you can never get doubled. So, you know, Jeff Teat's dad played for me in Rochester and I know him, I've known him for years, but he's one of the best guys off ball. He would just, you know, he didn't have the ball, the lefties had it, up pick on someone's back, flash the net. And his man has to decide if he's going to go with someone else, but he can never get doubled to pick, catch the ball, shoot the ball. So that's, like, we are always looking for, there isn't that many great players in the National Cross League off ball. and Because uh, everybody wants the ball. Everybody wants the ball, but you're going to get doubled. Yeah, you know, you're going to get doubled and tripled going in that with the ball. You'll never get doubled off ball because – well, except occasionally uh, you set an up pick and slip to the net and two guys go with you and now you just left the guy wide open uh, behind you. Great. And then you've got right. someone else open. So I think that's the key. And a lot of times, too, we talk to guys that even at the combine in Philadelphia, like, you know, everybody thinks you want to see picks. No, no. Come out of the corner and just do a 90-degree. You know, you set three picks in a row off ball. Come out of the corner and do a 90-degree cut to the net. And don't set that pick because that defenseman's going to get lazy. So movement off ball is huge. I mean, it clears so much space for everybody, indoor, outdoor. If I could teach any kid anything, if you're an offensive player, is to just to be better off ball when you don't have it. Everybody wants the ball. Everybody wants the ball. And in field lacrosse, it's kind of a, you know, one-on-one, -on -one, draw the slide, get the ball moving. And a lot of your off ball movement has to do with more like power play movement or being in the perfect spot once the slide goes. But to be able to create those opportunities through, you know, like you said, these 90-degree cuts where you fake a pick and just make the cut and bring two people with you on the cut. I mean, it's a thing of beauty. And I think with the shot clock in the U.S., you're going to see more of that. I think that you were, you've already been seeing a lot of pairs offenses in, in NCAA lacrosse, and I think they're actually starting to move towards, you know, a two-man side and a three-man side with one guy behind the net allowing that player behind the net to kind of play a hang-up game with his man. But now, now all of a sudden you've got kind of the same kind of um, movements that you're seeing in box with a two-man side of sort of a, either a two-man game or a mirror situation of one-on-one. -on -one. And, and then the off-ball, you know, picking and slipping that you just don't see that much in field across, but I think you're going to, especially because with the shot clock, you, you need to figure out ways to score, you know, without the ball. It's just going to be easier to shut people down. Yeah, and there'll be probably less slides, right? I mean, the defense will be thinking, well, I don't have to play so much. At least that's what we think in the indoor. We're slow to go. We show, but we're slow to go because uh, you got to play 20 seconds of defense. So, yeah, I mean, I think even I was at the LaxCon convention last year and talked to some high school coaches about, we were talking about kind of a 1-4 offense. We run in box sometimes where guys are at the half boards top guys throwing down and what's happening on ball is we're getting top side, but at the same time off ball should be up picking off ball. So if that timing wise, you throw from the top 
gets off the half boards. This can work in field. That guy gets topside, throws it behind the net to the feeder, off ball, just delayed a little bit, off ball, up pick, and then you've got lots of people flash into the net. You could run that all night. Outdoor. Right. And I think, like, uh, Penn State, for example, I think was running a similar offense to that last year. I'm kind of looking forward to checking that out. But I think there's – I think you're, you're going to see a lot of it. And I think that, um, yeah, maybe people will be slower to go. I mean, I think, um, you know, in field it's just easier to score, you know, on a shorty than it is in box, obviously, because of the net size. Yeah. But I think you're probably – and the dive is back, which is awesome. Right. So awesome. now you're really going to have to go to people because it's just going to be too easy to dive and score if you don't go against short sticks. So I think Penn State, Penn State coach ex Rochester Nighthawk. Oh yeah, Jeff Tamboroni. Yeah, Jeff played for me in Rochester. In oh, nice. That's awesome. Great yeah, guy. Great guy. He's got uh, one of Colin's teammates, Dylan Folds, from the Coquitlam Adonax, is a uh, Penn State Nittany Lion. So, um, you know, be interesting to see those guys. He's 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 recruited Canadians for a long time. Had a lot of success with, you know, from Sean Greenhall all the way through the Cornell days, tons of guys uh, that are NLL guys now. So, um, but, uh, you know, in terms of um, off-the-ball stuff, would you say the up pick is the most effective of the off-ball picks that you would try to teach if you were to teach, if you had to just pick one? Yeah, definitely. And there's so many kind of options on that. Like D Dan Stroop was a great guy. We had the beast thing, basically. Uh -huh. He came out of the corner and – on the way up, he kind of bumped his back into the defender's back, and then he'd be facing on the net with the ball low on the other side. So, I mean, there's lots. It's just not a straight up pick. Right. Um, but there's, yeah, there's so much to do off ball. It just I mean, seems, love it. It seems like the, the up pick slip is, you know, almost impossible to guard. You know, just how do you, how do you cover that with a backdoor cut? You know, it seems like really, really hard to do. I think, in, I think it would work really well in field lacrosse and boy, in women's lacrosse too. Oh my gosh. More women's teams are running your box oriented offenses too. Absolutely. You can't check anybody physically. So it's like even, it's like unguardable. And you know, it's different too. It's, a, it's the old days was kind of the find the numbers and set the pick with the stick, but now we're a little more bump and go. And it's yeah. tough, even tougher on a defenseman bump and go. Yeah, Bump, the guy goes, and then you're someone's going to be open most of the time off ball. Yeah, you can't really, and you can't hold as much um, in in NLL as you probably can in the summer. Is that true? Well, I'm 100 percent true. Yeah, there's a lot of holding in the summer, but uh, I think too off ball. I mean, you don't want to say this, but I've always talked to guys, especially in the pro league, off ball. Most of the time, the referees are watching the ball too, so That's right. you can get away with a lot more off ball bumping and cheating a little bit on the picks. Not to try to use, you know, illegal, but yeah, it's a, the reality hey. of the game. You got to push the envelope, right? Absolutely. Uh, let let the refs make the call. Sean Evans scored a goal in the Peterborough game, game five game. Remember that one where he like went underneath on Noble and Noble was getting held. I was like, how the heck did he beat him so badly? And then it was because Noble was basically being held as 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 Sean didn't use the pick. Mm -hmm. He didn't go top side off of it. He just split underneath and. Um, it was a maybe that would have been called in the NLL. I'm not sure, but um, but the whole IQ of like all that stuff too just makes you so much smarter when you start realizing how to like you know pin your own man to create space and all that kind of stuff. I think is just fascinating from a coaching perspective. Yeah, and it's always you know it's it's where you set the pick is so huge. Like you know defenders inside shoulder if you're sealing your own guy is huge because 
takes off and goes the other defense, goes the other offensive player, then you slip into the net. But right. sometimes guys seal their man on the wrong side. You want to seal that so he can't get out over top. We're trying to get over top. So a the first time get your get your teammate a good shot, and then the second time he can slip to the net, which is huge. So it's what shoulder we're always talking about setting it on the right shoulder, the correct shoulder, I should say. What are you telling uh, you know, what do you think the reads are for the Dodger in a two man game? Um, well, I, I think the big thing is a lot of times, probably looking to shoot over the top, right? Yeah, and, and a lot of times I see even in the, the field game the NCAA, a lot of times they'll set a pick and the, the Dodger will go the wrong way. Like the key is guys have to go the correct way. So if he's setting it on one shoulder, you gotta get over top that. If he's setting it you know, on the other shoulder, then you got to get underneath. So my saying in, on the bench a lot of times, if we don't get over the top, we can't get underneath. And if we can't get underneath, we can't get over the top. So I think it's key that, you know, the Dodger goes the right way. But, I mean, growing up in Peterborough, we would be on the bench. We'd say, we call them front door, back door, like basketball. So up pick, right, down pick. But we would say on the bench, I'd say to the guy I'm playing with, okay, I'll set a bad back door on you, but I'm coming back with a good front door. So I would set on purpose, not a good one, and then it would be pick, re-pick right away to come back for a, for for a good, one. for a top, to get the guy top side, or vice versa. So, I mean, it's really communication before you get on the floor. And, uh, and when you say set, not set a good one, you just mean like you're not really, you're, you're, you're actually not setting the pick, you're letting that defender through. Yeah, and, you're sort and of then I'm going to catch him, then I'm going to come back and catch him on the other side where I actually want to get him, get him top side. It's really uh, it. I've been doing this uh, that exact situation in, with my daughter in girls lacrosse, and obviously it's it works there too. But one of the teaching points that I noticed was how important it is after you set the first pick that's not going to be a good one to still roll to the net a few steps to get your guy to guard you so that you can surprise him the switcher with a change of direction to go set it for that top side and put him in sort of a a, a, a trailing position. Would you agree with that? Every single pick, if you get the guy, the other player has to be chasing. That's what they have to do. They have to chase. So V cuts all that stuff out of the corner. Yeah, you got to get the guy chasing him. Most of the time, he's going to stop or he's going to go right through. If he goes right through, you're going to be open. If he stops, and obviously you got the other guy open because you're just trying to create two on ones on or off ball. That's all you're doing. Right, and you're trying to make it hard for them to communicate because, like, basically, if they've got time to see it, then they're going to be able to play it pretty well and communicate it. But if you can get a step on your man and put them in that trail position, like you said, and then all of a sudden they don't have time to communicate, they're farther away, it's harder to hear it, you know, it's a difference, you know. That's why in field lacrosse so often, like, you'll see the too many games from behind, they'll sort of start in front of the net or at the goal line so that they can really try to get a jump on their guy uh, to go set the to go set the pick. But um, it's really, um, it's just such an amazing nuance that you just kind of figure out when you do it enough times in indoor. Um, it's really, uh, it's really fascinating. Absolutely. One of the, I have a question for you. So the Dodger coming back to the initial question, it, you know, you watch like Sean Evans and what he does so well is that he, he gets his man. I, I call it being in a double threat position for lack. I, I just, I kind of think of triple threat as a wind up and double threat is sort of this dodging posture that you can feed out of. 
Um, it's not really a shooting posture, although you could probably wind up from there. Austin stats will like go from his dodging posture and all of a sudden like wind up to shoot. But but stats is a good example of doing this too. They they have an ability to control their own man with yeah. this posture, this threatening position that really does sort of threaten underneath when they're going to come top side. They they make that guy overplay him a little bit underneath because if they don't, they're going to go underneath. And then they're reading what the picker's man is doing. Is he switching? Is he sealed? And then they're, and let's just say they're switching. It seems like these guys become brilliant at manipulating both players and being able to keep their man on them while keep the switch man thinking they have to switch. And once you can learn how to manipulate both guys, as opposed to run off the pick really hard and running right into a guy. I mean, I know there's a time and place for that. But, but I think when you think about the best guys, they seem to manipulate both players, at least for a fraction of time. And I think when you – first thing you talk about there is how they engage them, and that's, that's – you're a threat, a scoring threat, a shooting threat. That's the number one thing. I know doing lots of kids' camps, especially in the U.S., pick and roll, everybody wants to be a passer, pick and right. roll. Number one thing on a pick and roll game is the ball carrier has to engage and be a – Threat, because that's the first thing we want you to do. Shoot the ball if the shot's there. I think Shawnee, some of these guys are so good at at engaging their guy that they're going to shoot around them, they're going to go underneath, whatever they're going to do. Like he sets them up with that. A lot of time they'll set them up with the, the jab step down low. We yep. teach that with kids all the time. Yeah, want to come back topside, jab step down low. Sets the guy up as soon as that happens. The other guy's setting that pick on the inside shoulder, and he's getting top side. So, but number one thing, a lot of times in a game on the bench, everybody looks like a passer. You're not aggressive. I'll say to the guys, we all look like passers here. Let's be aggressive. Shoot first. Ask questions later. It's funny because, you know, you think about, like, that collarbone position, you know, <laughs> here, and it's a good position to be able to move the ball quickly. But it's not a great – Packing posture. I feel like when you look at the best guys and they put themselves in this dodging posture, they're really trying to like they're they're looking for their shot while they're selling their dodge. The selling their dodge allows them to kind of back their guy off just enough. Because if you get into your passing posture, you know the Jason Nobles of the world, these tough big de de defensemen, the Graham Hossicks, they'll just come right out and all of a sudden they're overplaying you, and and now you're like you know you know you can maybe take advantage of that, but they can also kind of channel you where they want to, whereas. When you're, like, in a serious posture, kind of like Kyrie Irving when he's going to go at his guy and, and basically jab, 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 yep. one way or the other. Um, that's a real difference from what field lacrosse players learn to do, which is field lacrosse players are more like taking a handoff and running towards a gap. And right. box lacrosse players are more like basketball players where they're trying to get as close to their man as they can without letting them check them. So that if, you know, like with Sean Evans, he gets, he plays that so perfectly that when he does make a move underneath, they can't touch him because he, he's just outside of their ability to cross check, but he's so close that if they're off balance at all, that he's getting, he's turning the corner on them. It's, it's a really interesting nuance that I just find super interesting to watch. And you learn as a kid, like pick and roll, you learn as a kid, basically, you've got to bump into the guy when you get the ball so that he's on you. Like we're always... 10 years old, you're bumping into the guy, stepping out to get the ball, and he comes with you. That's when the picks are set. So you, you have to be able to take that contact as a, definitely as a young guy. Yeah, it's really uh, 
it's really cool. And then, you know, when you think about shooting and finishing, <coughs> a lot of times that's, that's the different differentiator really between U.S. You know, field players that are great shooters and Canadians that are great shooters and the U.S. guys come in and they just struggle to finish. Um, what, you know, first of all, the nets are a lot bigger, you know, than they were back in the 90s when I played. Yeah. <laughs> Marty O'Neill, basically, he was our goalie and he was like, so uh, what's your name? I'm like, Jamie. He's like, so did you, uh, did you play offense in college? And I, I was like, yes. Um, you know, I was a little you know, my ego was a little bruised when, you know, when, because I couldn't score and I might only get three shots of practice. Cause you know, we, we had like, you know, four corners shooting with like six guys in each line and one ball going on. So yeah. it wasn't like you were getting a lot of chances, but when you think about the difference in shooting and finishing, what, how do you, you know, if you were to sort of sum it up, you know, why are the Canadians up beyond the obvious that they get to practice it? What do they do? What is, what is it that they do that the Americans aren't thinking about, you think, that makes them such great shooters? Well, I think in the indoor game, we talk a lot about mid-range shooting. I just watched some Kluche highlights this week, just, you know, doing a little research, and you see a lot of his goals are that mid-range. We call it mid-range. Like, the closer you get to the crease, the better angle the, the goaltender has. So, obviously, in the indoor game, when we talked about Shawnee setting up, usually it's a mid-range. He's mid-range shooting around that guy from one of the corners. But um, mid-range, dotted lines, kind of. Yeah, inside the dotted, kind of mid-range. Like in the NLL, that's we talk all the time about mid-range. And I think for us, it's all about angles. Um, we really try to stay on. We say our side, so a lefty stays on the right side of the floor, and we split the floor down the middle. And it's all about the best angle possible we can shoot understanding that even though you can't see that part of the net, you know, the eyes at the end of your stick can see that part of the net. So yeah. far side and always changing up. Like most good players are going to have three or four shots. So we love to shoot. Most guys like Paul and Gary and Tavares and junior, unbelievable overhand shooters, unbelievable. And I think that's hiding the ball, you know, behind your head, shooting the ball and you can go at, all six corners, I'd say, right, you know, high, mid, down, low. Shooting at hips and knees are huge. Most kids will want to shoot top corners, but goaltenders indoor, outdoor cannot stop the ball at hips and knees. You really can't. Hips high, huh? I love the hips. See kids shooting at the hips, I'm like, the kid's going to score a lot of goals. The, uh, one of the things I noticed that Canadian shooters all do is they wind up with like I call it a low high wind up, and you'll see it like sometimes with a hard pump, low to high. You know, like Johnny Palace. I call it, I actually I called the Palace pump because I kind of watched him do that like three or four years ago. But the hard pump, low, and then lift up, or just a low high wind up where it's more of a smooth kind of like low cradle. Looks like you might shoot it underhand, and then you lift your hands up, and from there, you know, they can put it wherever they want to. They can kind of lean. And throw far side and they can hold you up and yank it low but um is that something that's taught or is that something the guys just do it's funny there's not a lot of teaching going on i think it's more back to the backyard stuff we would no one really taught you how to shoot the ball you just kind of develop it see other guys joe walters is great at that we used to talk to him on the rochester bench like he would get a guy looks like he's shooting underhand because he did shoot underhand yeah and he'd come back you know, the goalie would drop and he'd come back top corners with the, the overhand. So 
Corey Small. Yeah, the pump and quick release. So important. Like Smallsy, when he'd struggle in the summer a little bit, was you give him the pump, but then he'd kind of pump, pump. Take it's a pump off. and it's a quick release. And wherever you're shooting, like they all shoot short side, far side, but it's quick release. Like if you're struggling as a scorer, I just tell guys, quick release, just shoot the ball. Quick, quick. The quicker you shoot it, better it's going to be. And then you get kind of back into a rhythm. You know, it's funny because I, I, it's really interesting. Like, you're right. I think it's not really taught. It's particularly by the coaches that is shooting in a lot of, you know, but I think, I think where, it, where, where the teaching actually happens is from player to player. Cause I would talk to Colin every summer and he'd be like, Oh yeah, I was working on this like uh, shot for the top left. He's a lefty in which, you know, he, he's like, I learned this from Larson sundown where it's like, and you watch Austin stats. He kind of does it too, where they, he's like, you kind of get up on your right foot on your front foot. And you hold it up there a little bit, and it's just that—it's that front foot pause where you you switch your weight from front from your back foot to your front foot, and and you know what I'm talking about—that little yeah. like, some of the natives do that. I was watching Austin Stats yeah. the other day, and um, but the interesting thing about the teaching is that I think a lot of times in box lacrosse, it's coming from the other players, particularly the older players to the younger players. Yeah, they just watch. It's kind of all watch. I think. You know, I went to Hobart for one year, and there's a lot more technical. We're not a technical group. We really aren't. Very rarely. I don't think I ever remember talking to guys about where your hands should be, you know, with little kids. But once you're in junior A and above, we're not. You know, other than, you know, getting the stick on the shoulder all the time for passing, things like that. But other than that, we're not a real technical. We really aren't a technical group, I don't think. I don't think I can't remember any coaches ever teaching me other than overhand, overhand, overhand when we're young. Right. Um, but yet, but yet, the, like I've spent time with you in a, an arena and said, "Show me some of your favorite finishes," and you're like, "Oh yeah, this is the Peterborough breakaway finish where you know you as a lefty you kind of running down and you lean to the right and make it look like you're gonna throw it top left and then you yank it near side and it's like, but you do have a lot of technical things that you know how to do." Yeah, we just kind of practice them. We have never, ever talked about them. But Jerry Hiltz taught me that, how to do that in junior. So scoring on breakaways, yeah, it works. But It's really yeah, I mean, it's, The whole thing's so interesting because, you know, uh, there's – I think of, like, the different development models. You know, you've got the, the Sandlot model, which is the backyard of lacrosse. It's where you just kind of learn how to play sports. And, and you've got the pass-it-down model which is where the older guys kind of teach the younger guys. And I really think it's prevalent in junior lacrosse and in more so than, than it is in other areas. Although I remember learning a lot of pass it down from the older guys. It would usually be summer league though. And it would be like, you know, Hey, what did you do on that play? And then, you know, some older guy would tell you what they did. And then you'd be like, huh, that's pretty interesting. But the coaches in the day never were teaching this stuff. It was always like the older players that were really good that had kind of tricks of the trade. And then there's the coaching model, which you and I are a part of also, which is, you know, where, where you have to get things organized. I think there's some really interesting concepts as it relates to there, there's a belief system out there that, that you're not even really ready for the coaching model until you've kind of played enough sandlot that you've kind of figured everything out and acquired a lot of these things without even knowing what they are. And once you kind of get to the point where you know how to do a lot of things just because you do, 
because you've played so much. Now it's time to really acquire and be taught things because you can learn them so quickly. But that's exactly what happens in, in, in Canadian box lacrosse and, in, in, and on the reservations too. Yeah, my, se like my seven-year-old, um, he's got pretty good hands. He plays hockey and lacrosse, but he'll watch videos all the time and then he'll be on the front lawn um, or at the cottage or at the rink. He actually doesn't even play on a team, but he will play and he'll recreate what other guys are doing and that's I mean he plays he doesn't even play on a team yet yeah but he has played on teams this summer he didn't want to play on a team so I knew twice three times a week he's going to be out with the Lakers uh you know warm up and shoot around right. in between yeah. periods and he's he, I, I can't do around the world he can do around the world at seven but just watches other people and he recreates their shots and I think that's you know, it's hugely important for your development, not just being um, so mechanical or so robotic. It's really amazing. So it's funny because you say, you know, we're really not technical. And yet, if I was to count how many skills, and I did because I like went through and clipped out like a lot of the clips from those Peterborough Laker uh, playoff run clips that you sent me because I'm just interested I mean, that guy's got more things that he does, more ways of shooting, more ways of dodging, more ways of passing, angles. I mean, it's unbelievable how many things he does and how quickly he, he, he does the next thing and how he sees it coming. And, you know, is, is it fair to say, you think, that the model that he grew up with, which would have been, look, he's just playing this game in pickup scenarios and playing the game, and figuring it out on his own, is that better than having a coach that can show you this along the way? Do you think the combination of both would be the best? Certainly the playground and the pickup games is 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 a is a obvious important piece, but but do you think adding the technical piece to it expedites the development or do you think it's just a process that you can't expedite no matter what? You just gotta figure it out and learn it. Yeah, I think you know for Definitely, you know, he's all of us in Peterborough and other places. That's what happened. You, you're just playing with your friends and learning every day. And then at nighttime, you go to the rink with the coaches and they kind of organize it. But right. I think that's where it starts. And that has been the, that has been the history of really the box game. That is everywhere you go, whether it's Onondaga or Six Nations, Orangeville, they're all, that's, they still do it. They still, that's the way it goes. It's funny because, like, when you think of field lacrosse and youth coaching, and, and you're like, man, you just, you got, we just need more of an emphasis on skill and less of an emphasis on team play from the perspective of just trying to keep it smaller sided and getting your reps and your touches. And I think in box lacrosse, it just happens naturally because the numbers are smaller. And the coaches just kind of focus on the, getting you organized and the team stuff. They're not – I think where the – in field where the mistakes happen is that Everyone spends too much time trying to teach instead of just putting them in these situations where they really just begin to figure it out. And it's just, it's a little bit of a contradiction because I, I really believe in skills first, but yet I think that you have to like let the kids figure it out on their own because I can teach and I've done this. I've literally taught every single skill in the book to a lot of kids and they can all do it. But the funny thing is, is that most of them, they don't translate it to the game. They can do it if you tell them to do it. They can do it in practice, 
but they never do it in a game. And I seriously believe that if you can learn how to do the stuff that Sean Evans is doing in a three-on-three pickup game with a tennis ball and your friends, you learn how to do this stuff over the course of time, you're probably going to be able to translate it to a game later. Absolutely. So with my little guy, he plays hockey here. It's organized hockey. He's on a team, but it's, um, I mean, the, the hockey model in Canada's changed now. It's, He's got a team of 16 guys, so they play other centers. They play Niagara Falls, St. Catherine as well, and they all play together. But they play four-on-four, half-ice, no offsides, no icings. Take all the rules out of it, and it's all about skill development. And I think that's the difference maybe between box and field, too. I mean, we don't have to worry about offsides. Right. I mean – you don't have to worry about riding and clearing, really. You know, like yeah, we don't have to worry about any of that stuff. We just right. play. And I think uh, it's funny, the more rules you take out, I always say that at NL meetings, the more rules we can take out for the refs, the faster the game will be and the easier it will be for the referees. And this summer and senior lacrosse, most of our games are done an hour and 45 minutes. And that's the speed of the game now and the way it's being played. Five years ago, they'd be two hours and 15 minutes because of the violence. And I think that's the key. You know, uh, youth lacrosse in Canada has to come a long way with youth hockey where, you know, I take my seven, eight-year-old kid to the rink and he plays tight lacrosse and he's getting lit up on the boards. That's not right. That shouldn't be part of our game. And they need to take that out of it. I mean, I'll, I'll tell you this. As a, as a dad, um, I – I, uh, there have there's been a couple times when I've been sort of, uh, scared for the, uh, safety of my son playing junior A lacrosse, but I will say most of the time, you know, it's been pretty clean. The Mintel cups have been super clean the last three. Um, I would say other than, you know, uh, our boy, uh, Neil Doddridge, my former teammate in Boston, his uh, Delta team was pretty dirty. Um, I was a little nervous there, but beyond that, I, I, I really feel like the majority of it has been really clean and hopefully that trend continues because I think people worry about box lacrosse. And I think when you played, I mean, the, the stories out here from Hammer about the wood sticks and how you had to pad yourself up and just how brutal that must have been um, compared to now where it's, it's physical, but it's, it's, it's fair. It's clean. It's not, yeah. it's not stupid. And it sounds like the NLL is actually even cleaner. Oh, NL is very, very clean. I think we, We've done a pretty good job. The league's done a really good job of taking high hits out and, you know, focusing on the slashing and hits from behind. Uh, but the youth in Canada, youth lacrosse, they need to take the model of Connor McDavid's the best young hockey player in the world. So he played no contact hockey until he was 14 years old. Hasn't hurt his game at all in the NHL. Oh. So why are, you go to a rink five and six-year-olds in Canada playing box lacrosse that are getting – cross-checked and lit up into the boards. That's completely stupid. It's still skill development, but that, for me, as a full-time lacrosse guy, that has to be out of our game. It's No doubt. People are not going to bring their kids. I've had pro hockey players that I know come to the rink with me and see Mac, my little guy, play paperweight lacrosse and say, my kids aren't playing this. They'll have concussion issues before they're 12. So, for me, that's – I mean, we've talked to – the OLA and the CLA about it uh, well, with Hunt last year, last summer in 2017, we had a talk, you know, meeting about it and we've got to change that. Obviously it's a great game. I love the game, but I also think that the skill developments should be the number one priority and just take all that 
out of the game until they're 12 or 14 years old. They got to make the goals a little bit bigger in, in uh, maybe not in like the youngest levels of play, but I think um, certainly for midget lacrosse, I think it's just the net is so small that it just, it, it, it fosters bad defense and, and just hammering somebody in the corner while someone else is shooting because you're not going to score against a midget goalie in a four by four net when they're almost the size of NLL goalies anyways. Yeah, they should be four by six a midget for sure. I mean, you see a lot of four, three games and five, yeah. two, and obviously those goalies are pretty padded up. So I think they got to change that for sure. Yeah, no doubt. Um, well, let's talk a little exciting news in NLL expansion. What's happening on the forefront there, how there may be more, uh, opportunity to work with the outdoor leagues um, that are working on their schedules before we wrap it up. What, what's, what's coming down the pike in the NLL? So yeah, the Rochester Nighthawks, uh, Kurt Starr's great owner. He's moving his team to uh, Halifax, which I mean, I think they're trying to mirror the Saskatoon um, schedule and rush uh, model. They, when you go to a game there, it's incredible. It is whole cities into it. So I think Halifax, the team, hasn't had pro sports before. So they're trying to, to be the first one there and uh, get into that rank. We had the World Championships there in 2007. And uh, it was, it's a great city. And I think, uh, you know, Kurt taking the team there is going to be, you know, really exciting for the league. And at the same time, uh, the Pagulas that own uh, the Bills and the Sabres and the Bandits are, are going to renovate the arena in Rochester and bring an expansion team next year there. Wow. Which is great, great for Rochester. Obviously, there'll be – you know, 7,000 fans that aren't happy that their players are leaving, but I think he's gonna, they're going to do such a good job with the real estate downtown, really revitalize downtown Rochester. It's close to my heart. I was coaching there. I, was, I remember going to the September, October uh, 1994 launch of the team and spent a lot of time there. So it's good for the league. The growth will be great for the players and uh, obviously some we're going to need expansion and Having the uh, of a player base, having the U.S. guys being able to commit to the NLL and the MLL are, uh, is going to be huge for us. So, I mean, it's exciting times, and the commissioner has done such a great job. There's going to be more expansion at West and more there expansion will. hopefully to the East, too. So we've got coming, you know, you guys are an expansion team, and you've got this new, uh, how really, Nova Scotia, call it. Rochester, if you want, but that's another one. What, what's the third one that's coming down the pipe? Oh, Vancouver. No, that's yeah, Vancouver. Yeah, San Diego. The Seals Diego. this year. Us, us and them this year, and then hopefully, uh, you know, if we get two teams next year, and then some more. I know they're they're talking about some Western expansion, which would be pretty great. Las Vegas. Yeah, <laughs> my friends, the head of media relations for. The Golden Knights, so uh, I mean, it's pretty exciting times with the hockey team there. So I think you know the game's growing, and it's a it's a great time for expansion. And I think the the U.S. player base is 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 growing huge, and that's going to be important for expansion. Yeah, it's it's pretty amazing to see. Honestly, the the kids that are coming out in the U.S. every year are more skilled and more skilled. Have you seen this kid's highlights called Brendan O'Neill? This this kid is like a junior in high school. Yeah. Did you see that, those clips of him? I mean, he looks like he could play uh, junior A lacrosse right now. He looks like a man right now. He does. Unbelievable. It's amazing. The skill level out of these kids, though, is off the charts. So, really interesting stuff. Well, Paul, listen, good luck with the draft. Uh, you guys are drafted number two. And uh, you've got an opportunity to get, like you said, uh, 
uh, a generational type of player in either Austin Stats or uh, in either Austin Stats or Chris Cloutier. Cloutier. Um, so good luck with that, and I uh, really enjoyed talking to you, talking box across, talking lacrosse overall, and um, we'll be in touch. All right, thanks, Jamie. Take care. All right, Paul, take care. The Philocrosophy Podcast is brought to you by JM3 Sports. Go to www.jm3video.com to get more information on the JM3 Video Assessment Tool.